everybody to the fourth of our CSF podcast. Specifically, I'm sorry, to arthritis. We'll be bringing you new episodes on a bi-monthly basis, as well as our access. And we'll also be supplying you with monthly slide decks to help keep you to date with the latest research publications in the field of PSA. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the School of Brisbane. And uh, joining me today is Laura Coates, Professor and NIH uh, Clinical Scientist, and of the kind of talk, and Senior Clinical Research Fellow at the Oxford Psoriatic Arthritis Centre, as well as uh, Dr. Frank Barron's Medical Director at the Goethe University. Welcome, both of you. Uh, I'll hand over to Laura. Thank you, Peter. Um, so the papers that we'll be covering in today's topical discussion highlight two fascinating therapeutics used in psoriatic arthritis treatment. This includes the latest evaluation of the efficacy and safety of gazelkamab in the DISCOVER-1 trial in patients with active psoriatic arthritis who previously received TNF inhibitors, as well as the latest investigation into the efficacy of secokinumab, specifically in patients with dactylitis over two years. So, uh, yeah. Thank you very much uh, for today's meeting, and uh, I'm happy to present our first paper titled Multi-Domain Efficacy and Safety of Guselcomab Through One Year in Patients with Active Psoriatic Arthritis with and Without Prior Tumor Necrosis Factors Inhibitor Experiences. Analysis of the Phase three Randomized Placebo Control Discover 1 Studies, um, and the first author is, is Chris Richlin. Uh, what a really huge title and the long title um, about uh, uh, these uh, study analyses. So the study background, um, of course, you all know that often TNF inhibitor is a main mode of therapy in patients who fail conventional DMA therapy um, as a first line biologic, so to say. Um, however, they have a primary treatment failure rate of up to 40% and only a modest target of, of at least 20% ACR or 20 response. And um, we all know these IL-23 inhibition with Guselcomab. It demonstrates efficacy with a favorable safety profile in reducing signs and symptoms of active psoriatic arthritis um, demonstrated in the two trials, uh, as mentioned by Laura, DISCOVER-1 and 2. So while the majority of DISCOVER-1 patients were naive to biologic treatments. 31% of patients had already received treatment with, with a TNF inhibitor, um, and there were previous publications have suggested that guselcomab is efficacious in both TNF pre-exposed and TNF naive population in, in psoriatic arthritis patients. Though the objective of this study was to evaluate the efficacy and safety of guselcomab in discover one patients with active PSA by prior use of uh, TNF inhibitors. So the results in this cover one, 118 patients, 31%, previously received one or two TNF inhibitors. And as previously reported, rates of uh, achieving 20% improvement in the composite ACR response at week 24 and week 52 were similar in TNF naive and TNF experienced patients, randomized to gazelcomab every four weeks uh, and uh, every eight weeks. So similar trends were observed for response rates uh, between 20% and 50% improvement in individual ACR criteria and for achieving individual minimal disease components because this is our uh, defined treatment target we want to achieve at week 24. TNF inhibitor naive patients were more likely to achieve endpoints related to physical function and pain than TNF experienced patients. 
but overall response rate were maintained or increased through week 52, regardless of prior TNF inhibitor use. Through week 60, inguselcumab treated TNF naive and TNF treated experienced patients, 62%, 64% respectively reported one or more adverse events. 4% and 6% had serious adverse events respectively. So we can conclude on this data, treatment with 100 milligram of glucelcumab every four or every eight weeks resulted in improvements in multiple domains of the psoriatic disease. These improvements were maintained through one year in both TNF naive and TNF experienced patient populations. And a consistent and positive safety profile was observed in both TNF inhibitor populations and was consistent with the glucelcumab safety profile established for PSA and psoriatic arthritis. So, yeah. So, Peter, uh, Laurel, exciting results, what you have, or, or data uh, you have expected, or uh, do you think we need these separated analyses of TNF failure uh, or TNF exposed uh, patients compared to those who are naive? And um, my, my next question would be uh, is it still the case that we always have to go for a TNF inhibitor after failing conventional DMARDs? Uh, of course, Laura, at least in UK, I think there are strict rules how to follow, but uh, maybe Australia is more relaxed. I don't know. You're correct. We are more relaxed and we, we have it, our own driven by nice who are not very nice to do different things. <laughs> but uh, what I liked about this study, one of the accusations of um, PSA, PSA therapy is that it gets tachyphylaxis over time. Now, this trial had 90-plus percent retention, which was very good. And if anything, improved over time rather than lost efficacy over time. And most patients stayed in. The other thing I liked about it, always, because the safety is so good, and we haven't had a chance really to highlight the safety, but they had no opportunist infections, minimal serious infective episodes, very low SAE rates compared to placebo, no MACE, no malignancy, no IBD. This stuff's pretty safe. And so I always look at the four-week versus the eight-week, and there's always a chance. And it would be great for if... But at least it gives us some uh, comfort because I've had the odd patient come out of a trial where they're on monthly and going to two monthly reimbursed who need monthly for a short period to get over a hump and then you can settle them back down to two monthly if we can get a little bit of compassionate supply. The other thing that was nice about this study, they looked at most unusual outcomes like, you know, swollen joint count reduction to less than one, um, tender joint count to less than one, passy less than one. Not the usual stuff we see because that was all reported in the six-month study. This shows the 12-month continuation. No tachyphylaxis like you might see with the TNFs and really impressive safety. Laura, what did you think? Yeah, so I think it's really useful to have data on the patients who have experienced or failed TNFs before. Um, they're a big proportion of our population. Um, and certainly in my region of the UK, we don't have to use TNFs first. But we mostly do because we have a lot of experience with them and because they are cheaper. And actually, for most patients, you know, there isn't much to choose between the drugs. Um, you know, if there was a good reason, I could pick something different. But I think the default tends to be to use a TNF biosimilar first line. 
So we are often looking at the the difficult choice being for that second drug that, that most of the time you would pick a TNF first line. But then the question is actually, what mode of action do you move to? Do you cycle within TNFs? Do you switch to a different mode of action? Mm. And which one would you pick? So I think it's really nice that there's good data here comparing the TNF naive and the TNF experienced and that there isn't a really big difference. There isn't a big drop off in terms of efficacy because this is probably where I'm most likely to use the drug. Um, I guess the other thing, and, and it's sort of a double-edged sword, it's really nice that you keep getting improvement out to week 52. As Peter says, it's nice that you haven't got patients dropping out or losing effect over that period. But it does mean that the patients probably need to be advised that they need to wait longer, even longer, before mm. they get the best outcome from the drug. So it does seem that um, IL-23 is very effective in psoriatic arthritis, but it does maybe need a bit more time. You're getting kind of a good outcome by week 24 uh, and then a, a sort of more remission level outcome at week 52. So it's giving, it's encouraging patients who have seen a response that they are likely to get more response over time if they can be patient enough to wait for that. Mm. What about uh, you, Frank? What you you, you raised the question about, yeah, I think uh, Laura raised an important question about cycling TNF. So is there, based on these data we have right now, and we have data from bimekizumab uh, um, uh, showing those same responses in TNF pretreated as well. So is there any reason to cycle TNF? So I, th I think people well, are doing it less it and less. There's a bit of registry data suggesting that switching to a different mode of action is slightly better than cycling within a TNF. Obviously, sometimes there are good reasons why you'd stick within one class. So patients with uveitis, IBD, other problems. Mm. Um, but again, we're seeing more and more data for some of these newer drugs in IBD, for example. So, you know, we, mm. we are likely to have more options. So I think my default is usually to change to something different. But there are a few cases where I would stick to a, a second mm. TNF or it would be a, a particular good idea for that patient. And I think what we're seeing in our neck of the woods where we the price signal as critical in our choice, everyone is so risk averse and the Asia Pacific has a strong TB signal. So mm. people are tending to go 17s and 23s first and TNS if there's uveitis, IBD or failure only because... Um, they all work better TNF naive and TNF IR, and you don't lose much going from, from one to the other. And it's the safety side of things. There's some combination studies now, TNF 17 or TNF plus 23, because of it for many patients has real resonance. Mm. Yeah. I. I, I... I think, interestingly, I have two different kinds of cohorts I'm treating in psoriatic arthritis. One is uh, only in the rheumatology department, and then we have the joint inflammation clinic with our derms and gastroenterologists. And interestingly, the derms for psoriasis, at least in Germany, don't start with TNF anymore. So they directly go to 17 or 23 uh, as soon as they recognize that there is a need for systemic biologic advanced treatment, uh, um, and they don't stick anymore to TNF. So... Uh, of course, sometimes I'm in the situation to say, come on, guys, uh, based on the amount of skin involvement and based on all the musculoskeletal and arthritic domain, uh, domains involved, it's fine for me as well to go with the TNF biosimilar. 
but they come. Why should I waste time? Uh, the, the proportion and the probability to achieve PASI 100 or almost clear, clear skin is so much higher for 17 and 23. I don't want to waste time and I go directly to, to 23 or 17. So that's my experience, at least when I have the joint clinic with my, within the inflammation clinic uh, with my derms. Yeah. Yeah, but maybe Fair this enough. is a good, I think good our, Yeah. yeah our, our derms are giving us the same, our derms are giving us the same signal that they, yeah. and, and they're so impressed that you don't have to monitor this and you, you don't have to screen for that. And because at least in our country, the derms aren't physician trained. They go straight into dermatology from hospital residency. And when you start talking about screening and monitoring, you can see their eyes glaze over and they look at both. <laughs> and they go, look, you know, this is just too time consuming for us. So uh, but yeah, let's, I, let's move on to the next paper, Laura, yeah. over to you about. Yeah. Sure. Um, so our next paper then is the efficacy of secukinumab on dactylitis in patients who've had active psoriatic arthritis from the Future 5 study. Um, so the um, Future 5 study has been published previously. It was a very large study of secukinumab in active psoriatic arthritis, but this paper wanted to look specifically at dactylitis outcomes. And obviously we know that dactylitis is a really characteristic feature of psoriatic arthritis, and roughly about half of the patients with PSA will present with dactylitis over their uh, disease course. Uh, and we know from some studies before that dactylitis is really reflective of a higher disease burden. And so it's a key domain that we need to be thinking about and treating in patients with psoriatic arthritis. Obviously, Secukinumab's now been around for a while. It's established uh, and it has established efficacy in psoriasis, in PSA and in axial spondyloarthritis. Uh, and Future 5 looked at Secukinumab in different doses with and without loading doses. Uh, but the key really is that it was a very large study. Um, and so it had nearly a thousand patients with psoriatic arthritis. And that's important if you want to look at things like dactylitis because they're only ever present in a subset of patients. So often in the smaller studies, um, we are just not really powered uh, to look in detail at subgroups like those with dactylitis. So in Future 5, 39% of the patients, um, just under 400 patients, had dactylitis at baseline when they came into the trial. And that seemed to be associated with more active clinical disease and greater disease activity compared to those who didn't have dactylitis. So it did seem to be a kind of worse um, phenotype of disease. And then they looked at resolution of dactylitis across the different treatment groups um, and showed good outcomes out to week 104 with all of the different doses of secukinumab. And obviously, we've seen data before that that was also associated with improvements in joints, enthesitis, psoriasis and nail disease, and in patient reported outcomes like physical function and health related quality of life. Uh, and that study showed good maintenance of response over two years in those outcomes and in the dactylitis outcomes. Obviously, one of the reasons for, for doing Future 5 and for doing such a large study was to look at radiographic progression. There were quite low rates of radiographic progression in general in the study. Over 80% didn't show progression of radiographic disease. Um, and that seemed to actually be similar in those with and without dactylitis. So you, you might worry that that group had more severe disease at baseline, would be more likely to show radiographic damage over that two-year period. But on treatment, 
that didn't seem to be the case. There seemed to be a, a good number of those who didn't show radiographic progression over that two-year period. So I think the, the study in Future 5 has confirmed probably that dactylitis does seem to be associated with a higher disease burden and with more disease activity in other domains compared to those um, who don't have dactylitis, but certainly showed good evidence for early and for sustained efficacy of secukinumab on dactylitis, um, really regardless of the other domains uh, and generally with low radiographic progression and improvement in patient reported outcomes as well. So I think it's a, it's a very nice study that has the size for us to be able to look at these subgroups like dactylitis. And obviously for patients, this is often a, a big issue. Patients presenting with dactylitis are often really disabled and limited by the swelling and pain that they have in the digits from dactylitis. So um, in terms of treatment, Peter, Frank, would you do anything different for your patients with dactylitis? Do you treat them much as the patients without dactylitis or does it come into your kind of treatment pathway um, in terms of uh, drug selection? Well, I, I think it's a, it's can be very difficult to treat and it's a very strong signal. Stop mucking around with conventional synthetic demands because they won't help. It's really one of those signals, increased burden, associated with progression, you got to collate that person to a biologic and then it's a question of which biologic. It's no longer how to treat, it's what to treat with. And it'd be very difficult to treat, very painful. We went through the phase of injecting them and whatever, but clearly they need a biologic and we need to get them onto it quickly. X-ray much anymore, we find it's so insensitive and we've got ultrasound freely available in our clinic. So we... And sometimes we just don't use plain X-ray other than in a trial to reassure us it's not an expensive end. What about you, Frank? What do you do with so? Uh, yeah, I I think it's important to understand that dactylitis are not three arthritic joints in one digit. It's more than than arthritis. I think the challenge we have right now that the mixture of all, it's arthritis or can be arthritis plus enthesitis, tendonitis and, and soft tissues to tissue inflammation beyond all these defined structures. And this makes it so difficult. And therefore I fully agree, there's no need to, to, to uh, spend time on a conventional therapeutic approach because I, I couldn't see a lot of dactylitic uh, resolvement in, in, in methotrexate or leflunomide or whatever treatment. Uh, of course, if it's one symptom of a polyarticular disease, it's not, uh, it's not, it's okay to, to start and let's see what happened. But if it's, it's not achievable uh, to, to re resolve this issue, then move forward rapidly. On the other hand, I think we all know some kind of, let's say, chronic dactylitic features without so huge amount of inflammation, uh, without any pain, uh, which is also sometimes a challenge for me to, to discriminate whether this is the only indicator where I have to, to uh, uh, increase my therapeutic approaches and, and, and change treatment. Uh, but definitely it's, 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 it's sometimes a challenge. But I have one question to Laura. Why is dactylitis not included in the MDA list? <laughs> so um, I think dactylitis obviously is one of our key domains 
in terms of choosing a therapy and in terms of the grappa recommendations for example it's a, a key thing that we want to take forward um, we have issues in the UK um, because dactylitis, as you say, is not only just three joints, but actually in the UK, it doesn't even count as three joints. <laughs> so to get access to biologics, we have to have three tender and three swollen joints. But they put in an additional caveat to say that dactylitis counts as one, not as three. Um, so for patients who have dactylitis, they have to have three dactylitic digits or dactylitis plus other joints. Um, in terms of getting access to therapies. So it can still be a bit of a challenge for some of our patients. And, and I agree, I think those cold dactylitis, that the non-active, non-inflammatory, not painful ones are really tricky. And that's maybe where I would go to ultrasound. Um, as Peter mm. said, that's really useful to look at inflammation, to know what's going on um, and to try and see if you might have a reversible element of the disease to try and help. So I think, I mean, in terms of dactylitis, we've talked about it being being a challenge, um, being an important sort of prognostic marker, being something that maybe makes us take more note and think about escalating treatment as quickly as we can. Um, obviously, this is very strong data for secukinumab from a very, very large trial. But I guess what we're still missing is data that compares drugs here. Um, you know, we talked mm. about the fact that dermatologists have changed their practice and have moved on to newer drugs because they've got head to head evidence showing that one drug is better than another. Um, I think for the most part, we've seen reasonable evidence for all of the biologics in dactylitis, albeit usually in smaller cohorts than in this Future 5 study. Um, but what we haven't had yet is any data that tells us that one drug is better than another. So we're we're talking about moving to biologics but not necessarily that influencing the treatment choice. Does that sound fair to you as well? Fully yeah, agree. I think so. Yeah, agree. And I, I, the cold, non-painful one always makes me laugh when the studies look at 100% resolution of dactylitis. And I'm thinking, well, that's not what I see. Half of them don't sort of shrink back down to a normal digit. So I was going to ask you what you think of the LEI. What do you think of the SPARC and things? What do you think of these, sorry, the LDI I should be talking about. What do you think of it as a measure? You put a little thing around it, you from one, two, three down to whatever. Um, simple, easy, quick, I suppose, but is it sensitive? Is it telling us important information or it's just a simple tool and move on? I mean, it's obviously... Uh, more complex than just counting, um, which is where we came from before. So what we usually do is a dactylitis count of zero to 10 or zero to 20, if you're including the feet as well. And to be honest, in clinical practice, that's all I would record. I would just say, you know, three dactylitic digits or two dactylitic digits. And I might make a note if one of them is non-tender or, you know, appears to be more chronic. Um, but I wouldn't go into kind of measuring and scoring in quite the same way. Um, I think there is some quite nice evidence around the, the Leeds dactylitis instrument. It, it allows us to quantify dactylitis a bit, not just swollen or not, but how swollen it is. Um, it includes the tenderness score as well. So you're picking up um, whether something is tender and presumably active and inflamed. So it, I think it's useful in trials, particularly if you really want to look at that particular domain of disease. 
but I, I doubt it's going to get any traction in terms of routine clinical practice. And even for a lot of the um, non-phase three drug trials, so the, the drug um, studies that we're running in-house, um, some of our registry data or cohort data, again, we, we haven't included the dactylitis instrument. We've just done a, a quick count as something that's sort of clinically feasible, um, useful for measuring change over time and gives us at least a, a core amount of data on that. Excellent, thank you. Frank, any last comments about this paper? Um, I think the challenge is that we don't have a powered study with primary endpoints of these kind of manifestation. And I, I think maybe we will never get it because otherwise you have to make a clinical trial for all the domains in psoriatic disease separately, which becomes a nightmare. So to be honest, I think um, it's great that we have uh, at least for secondary, key secondary endpoints or explorative endpoints now more and more data. And of course, I think we have to accept that a combination of different studies gives us at least the numbers uh, to make a robust answer on whether it works or not. Uh, but I fully agree with Laura's comment. It would be great to have head-to-head -to, -head, uh, uh, to see specifically in the non-arthritic uh, manifestation whether one or the other mode of action seems to be superior. If you look for let's say the comparison of the IL-17, the Exceed and the Spirit head-to-head. -head. If you look in detail, at least at some visit with some instrument, it's always a slight trend towards to the IL-17 in the non-arthritic uh, to see it's a little bit better. But of course, this has to be demonstrated and this would give us uh, uh, a lot of information to decide whether we go first um, with the TNF uh, or we follow the advice of our dermatologist. Uh, let's go to, to, to uh, IL-23 inhibition or 17 first, but uh, hopefully in the future we will see uh, new data on it. So it is interesting that we, uh, nearly all the drugs, are, we're lagging behind. A podcast brought to you by CSF Forum. Really hope you've enjoyed it, found it useful. If you did, don't forget to subscribe to our channels on YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast from, so that you don't miss any future episodes. If you want to read more about what we've discussed today, head over to cytokinesignaling.com, where you'll find details for each of the papers and some downloadable slide kits. Thank you for your attention, everyone. See you next time.